I'm going to preach until my voice gives out this morning. So depending on how long you want to stay, it depends on how you pray. Um, <laughs> no, we'll see, see if we can get through the text this morning. It is good to come back and be in Isaiah again and to be studying God's Word. We had a wonderful reading service last week where we saw the big picture. And now we come to the third book of Isaiah, or the third section of Isaiah, chapters 56 on through 66. And, and so this has a, a whole different theme. But to start us off, I want to show some pictures. I, I like pictures. And so if we look up here, this happens to be Bethlehem and, and the Church of the Nativity. And um, if, you, if you look, this is an open courtyard as you're about to go in. And in that recess is the door. You can all see the door real clearly, right? And so um, this door, and I'll, in a minute I'll show you the next picture, but this door is called the humble door. And it's really interesting, and if we show the next picture, you might notice why. So what do you notice about the picture? It's little, right? It's, and it's, it's actually, it's, it's interesting to get in. You really have to duck down. It's small, and the, the first year I went, it wasn't as hard as the second year. Um, so I think it's shrinking. Or I'm getting a little older. I don't know which. Can you see the outline of the original door? And so the the story is, it's actually been shrunk twice. And and the story that the guide will tell you as we walk through is it's called the humble door to remind us that to, to enter the presence of the Lord, to come into His sanctuary, we're to be humble. We're to bow and to be contrite. Interestingly enough, if you look back through history, it's probably more likely that the door was shrunk to keep marauders on horses from getting in. But either way, I guess it makes a good story now. But, and, and, but it is an interesting way to symbolize the attitude by which we come into the presence of the Lord. In the, the next section of the book of Isaiah, we're talking about the kingdom of God. And we're talking about how to come into the kingdom today and in these first few chapters but the, the focus is, is definitely on the new heaven and the new earth and the millennial kingdom. And there's all kinds of questions of how to date this section and to give us a little bit of background as we've done on each. The, the first 37 chapters, we said, were written to a people targeting them before the exile, saying, repent or else Babylon or someone's going to come and take you into exile. And then we had Isaiah writing to a people that would read it 150 years later, in chapters 38 through 55, a people that had been taken into exile and that were in captivity in Babylon. And the message there was comfort, comfort, trust God, believe that God is God alone. Don't fall into the idolatry of Babylon, but stay true to God and He will be your salvation. And we saw the servant songs where the ultimate salvation of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins was said. It was prophesied. In chapters 56 through 66, most likely it's following a chronological progression and Isaiah is probably thinking of the people after they return from exile. We no longer have any wording about Babylon and come home and things like that. And now the wording is back to, to Israel and back to Jerusalem. And so it's probably thinking of a people that have come back from Babylon and how do you live? How do you live after the salvation of God and after you've been brought back in, knowing, though, that you're still looking forward to something better? Because the the focus of this section is going to be the something better. 
the, the future new heaven and new earth, when we are in eternity with Christ, with God the Father, and when we are dwelling in their presence and there is no more sin and no more effect of sin. And so this last section of the book of Isaiah is a section of looking forward. Some of the, the commentators were like, okay, we're not quite sure how to, how to date it, or, or we know when it was written by Isaiah, but who to target it to. But really, it's targeted to anyone, they said, that's, that's looking forward to heaven. Anyone that's looking forward to the kingdom of God and, and what that will look like and, and being able to spend eternity with God. And so that includes you and I. It definitely included Israel as they came back from exile, but it includes you and I. See, the problem is, as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, we can get all excited about that it's going to be perfect and sin's going to be gone, right? But is sin gone now? No. And so when we think of the kingdom of God, there's always this tension of we're looking forward to, to per, the, the perfect state of wonderful communion with God, but we still have to live that kingdom in light of today and in light of the world today. Sometimes we call that in, in kingdom, in studying the kingdom, the already and the not yet. And what I mean by that is the kingdom of God is already here with the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Sin was paid. It was conquered. We accept Christ into our hearts and he reigns in our hearts. And so the kingdom of God is present now in the hearts of every believer because he's reigning in our hearts. But it is not fully realized now. Because sin is still in existence on the face of this planet. But we're looking forward to a day where it will be fully realized, right? And sin will be taken care of. Sin will be judged. And we will be in perfect communion with God. And that's the not yet. And so we're in the middle. We're in the middle of the already and the not yet in that tension. And that's what we see as we study this next section is how do we live in the middle? How do we live as people saved by God, but looking forward to a kingdom still in a world that is wrecked by sin? And so today, as we come to chapters 56 and 57, sort of the introduction to the kingdoms, kingdom chronicles, we've had the trust chronicles and the Babylon chronicles, and now we have the kingdom chronicles. As we, as we start out, the first thing that Isaiah deals with is, okay, who, who's part of this kingdom? When we're talking about a kingdom, we, we have to start there, don't we? How do you get in? How do I know that I'm part of God's family? Or am I on the outside looking in? And so this is where he starts. Because we know that not all will be saved. Only those that follow the king will be saved. But to enter the kingdom, you have to fulfill what Christ says we need to do. The team that's going down today, I saw a lot of hustle and bustle this morning involving passports, right? Important? Somewhat? Yeah. So what happens if you're trying to come back and you don't have a passport? Well, you don't get in. Maybe you can do some legal wrangling or whatever. I don't know. Eventually, hopefully, you'd get back in a couple of years. But um, you, you don't get in because you need that passport as your your ticket of admittance. Or, or basically, it's it's showing that you can legally come into this nation. And, and so I, I do hope you all have your passports. And I know, I know Pastor Andrew is taking care of making sure you do. In, in sort of the same way, in sort of a weird comparison, Isaiah starts out by saying, okay, what do we have to do to be in God's kingdom? What is the requirement? 
And, and this is immediately following discussion of the servant and what Jesus has done on the cross. So it's, it's just very appropriate. Turn with me to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. And we're going to move pretty quickly through Isaiah 56 and 57 today. And, and really the, the synopsis of what's going to happen, you have three points in your notes, is he's going to start by talking about the ideal. What really is required to enter the kingdom of heaven? And then he's going to move to the actual to say, actually, this is still a sinful world. People are still falling away from God. And then he's going to resolve that in the last section to give us hope of how we can be saved in the alre- between the already and the not yet. Isaiah chapter 56. We'll start with the, the first eight verses. We'll we'll, um, look at them a couple at a time. But point number one in your notes is all who follow God are co-equal family members in His kingdom. All who follow God are co-equal family members in His kingdom. Even people who are different from us. Even people who are not normal like me. All who follow God are co-equal family members in the kingdom. And let's unpack this because you're going to see that's his, that's his focus. That's his thrust. You have to follow God, but all, no matter what your background, are invited. And this is the ideal of kingdom living. So, so letter A there, as we look at the first couple of verses, it's a summary of what God wants. He wants us to live godly lives. This isn't a shocker today. He wants us to live godly lives, to live rightly. Let's read these verses. Thus says Yahweh, Keep justice and do righteousness. Pretty, pretty easy, right? Two things. Keep justice. Always apply God's commands, His decrees to our lives. And do righteousness. Never stray to the right or to the left. How are we doing on that one so far? <laughs> no one, no one, it's just two things. You guys haven't kept that your whole life yet? No, and so do you see what I'm starting? Uh, starting out with the ideal. And Isaiah is pointing out what the kingdom's going to be like. Do you know that we're going to be there? That is going to describe us when we're in the new heaven and the new earth. But he says, keep justice, keep righteousness, do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. And we see the introduction to the section on the kingdom to say, Soon the kingdom will come. My salvation will come. And we see see it starting in Jesus that they're looking forward to the Messiah. And then His righteousness, His purposes will ultimately be revealed in the kingdom. But He says that should be our motivation to work to keep justice and do righteousness. And it's important to understand the sequence here because he, He isn't saying that this is salvation by works. Because you all said we don't do these things. And we saw in Isaiah 53 that the servant has to, to take the penalty for our sins. We don't keep this. But what he is saying is because of salvation, because of the kingdom that's coming, we should still be working to keep justice and do righteousness. It's a motivation difference. It's saying I'm not, I'm not doing these things to be saved. I'm doing these things because I'm saved. See the difference? And so somehow, as we study the coming kingdom, that should move us. That should stir us to follow God. To live in light of this coming salvation. 
Verse 2 goes on. He says, blessed is the man who does this. And the ladies, you just studied the, the Sermon on the Mount and you studied the word blessed or, or to have God's favor bestowed on you and to be considered fortunate with God. He says, blessed is the man who does this and the son of the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. It's interesting because he's really just restating the first verse here. To keep justice and do righteousness. But he uses an illustration that they would have understood. They understood the Sabbath as being the key to saying, I'm committed to God. I'm committed to following His covenant. We know that Israel for many times didn't follow the Sabbath, including after they came back from Babylon. They struggled with that. But he says, Blessed is the man who does this, keeps justice and righteousness, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it. We'll talk a little bit more about the Sabbath in, in chapter 58, but the idea here is that this is setting apart one day for the Lord. Setting apart a day that is holy. And, and, and doing this showed loyalty to God. It showed that you were willing to take at least a day each week and turn away from all the worldly pursuits, all the things we have to do, work, and turn toward the work of God. And one commentator said it really was God giving us a taste of heaven one day a week. A taste of heaven where we drop worldly pursuits and we just focus on worshiping God and doing God's work, which is what we're going to be doing for all eternity in heaven. I love that idea of the Sabbath because it's a foretaste of that renewed creation. It's a foretaste of the kingdom. It reminds us to do justice and to, to be intentional about doing justice and righteousness and to not do evil. What's interesting is as you study the Sabbath, and we're not going to get real deep into this this morning, as you study the Sabbath, the idea behind it was to keep it holy, dedicated to the Lord. And so the Sabbath was always turning away from something to something. Always both parts. And sometimes we think of a Sabbath as, I'm going to turn away from work and I'm going to do what I want. Dodger game's on today. Football comes in a few months. I'm just going to relax. And, and so we think of the Sabbath just on the rest part. But that's not the whole counsel of Scripture. The whole counsel of Scripture was you set it apart, you dedicate it, you devote it for the Lord which is why we worship. We worship on Sunday now. The Sabbath was Saturday, but in light of the resurrection, we worship on, on the Lord's Day on Sunday. But to set apart a day where you're devoted to the Lord's work. In fact, in, in 58, we'll come back to it because 58 will basically say it's, it's not about your own desires. It's not, not about your, your own wants. It's about what I want you to do. In fact, some of the authors, I loved this concept is, one of the authors said it's rest from the world and busy with God's work. Restful busyness is the Sabbath. Now we, we think, some of you are like, what, busyness? No, because our, our lives are so busy. But the idea is to take a break and do what really fulfills that we studied a couple weeks ago in Isaiah. What really fulfills is being about the work of God. Rest from the world, busy with God's worship and God's work. That's keeping a Sabbath holy and set apart to the Lord. 
And so he brings this up as an illustration of, of how you follow the covenant. You don't profane it by seeking your own work and your own desires and, and your own interests. And you keep your hands from doing evil. And so a summary of what God wants is to live godly lives. But then the, the passage takes a really interesting turn in 3-8. through eight. It would have been a, a shocking turn for, for those living in Jerusalem and those in Israel. Admittance to the kingdom, letter B, admittance to the kingdom is based on a heart for God, not race or status. Admittance to the kingdom is based on a heart for God, not race or status. In these verses, you're going to see foreigners are welcome. Outcasts are welcome. Both are accepted based on a completely different standard from the external, but where is their heart? And this would have been shocking to them. Verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. And he's using two classes of people. A foreigner would have been an outcast, someone that would have not been included in the assembly, someone that would not have been included in the, the worship assembly until they actually became part of Israel. And so he says, let not the foreigner who believes in God, who gives himself to the Lord, who joins himself to the Lord, let him not say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. It's a statement that you're not going to be outcasts anymore. You're part of what God's doing. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. And a eunuch was one who was dedicated to service of royalty or a king oftentimes. And, and they were emasculated as a male. And so they were maimed. And part of the, the, the law that was given is that if you're maimed, you can't come into the presence of the Lord. And it was dealing with, with people that had intentionally done things to their body and maimed themselves. But he's saying... Even the eunuch, if their heart is sold out for God, is going to be accepted. Behold, I'm a dry tree. Reference, they couldn't have kids. They couldn't have descendants. And that was everything to them. And so he takes these two classes of people that were shunned and put on the outside and says, let's talk about them. Let's talk about the new kingdom admittance policies. Because it's not just you have your your, uh, card-carrying Israelite anymore. It has to do with a heart for God. And so he goes there in verse 4. For thus says Yahweh, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. Those are the standards he's saying. Obeying my, my commands. Pleasing me and holding fast to my covenant. To those, in verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That would have been so significant to them because a name and an everlasting name for their family is what was cut off. It couldn't happen. They couldn't have kids. And God is saying, oh no, that's just on the outside. Follow me. And in my own home. And so there's this concept of dwelling with God. In my own house, there will be a monument to you. Name of your sons. Your family line. You will not be cut off because it's, it's spiritual family now. For following God. 
And this would have been shocking for the people hearing it. But keep in mind, how, how amazing would this have been for all the young men that were taken to Babylon and, and turned into eunuchs? Think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who quite possibly were made eunuchs. Men after God's own heart who now think I'm excluded and God is saying, no, you're not. Because in my, in my kingdom, entrance is based on a heart for me. We have to keep moving. Verse 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. And this again is an intentional binding who love the name of Yahweh. And, and catch these phrases here. Be challenged by how do we worship. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord in intentional following of God to minister to Him. We do that with our worship. We do that with our actions. How do we bring glory to God? to love the name of of Yahweh? Do we seek Him? Do we crave Him? To be His servants? Are we seeking ways to do what He wants us to do? Everyone who keeps the Sabbath, again, representative of, of obedience to God and setting apart, being willing to set apart our lives for God and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. They'll be able to come to Jerusalem. They'll be able to come into the courts of the temple and they'll be able to participate in prayer because it isn't about the external. It's about a heart for God. This is what Jesus quoted when He cleansed the temple. And He said, My courts, my temple will not be a place for robbers and thieves, but will be a house of prayer for the nations. And He's quoting Isaiah. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. It's a huge statement that God will be pleased with their worship. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And you have a statement, man, this is, this is a section that again is so outward focused. And it's a statement of, my heart is for the nations. I want to gather people from all nations who will devote themselves to me, who will follow me, who will accept my gift of salvation. There is such inclusiveness here in the Old Testament where people sometimes tell me, oh, there's nothing about the nations in the Old Testament. Have you read it? It's everywhere. God's heart has always been for all people to come to Him. Now we know that the early church and some of the Jewish churches would struggle with this. We saw it even in the time of Christ. And we, we saw Peter to be able to, to get outside of his head of only, only thinking of Jews as part of the kingdom had to have a vision of the sheet being let down. Do you remember that? And God was saying, no, if I call it clean, it's clean. Go, go. And then he went to Cornelius and saw the gospel move in powerful ways. We see Paul in Galatians 2 confronting Peter 
about showing partiality to one race over another because he hadn't gotten us yet, at least at that point in time. We see the council in Romans 15 as they're talking about, well, what do the Gentiles really have to do to be saved? Do they have to be exactly like us? And they came to grips with the fact that it's a heart issue. It's circumcision of the heart that God is looking for. A heart devoted to God. And this is an incredible passage. One, it should give us great joy because we're included. If it wasn't for passages like this, we'd still be on the outside looking in. But as Gentiles, we're included. I have a few bullet points there in your notes of how do we respond to this section? How do... How, how should this challenge us? One is it should challenge us to have a world focus, to expand the tent as we talked about a few, few weeks ago, to see God's heart for the world, to burn with God's heart for the world. That burning should make us pray every day this week for the team going down to Mexico because they're going further in the world than Garden Grove. And they're sharing the gospel and doing God's work. It should cause us to notice when our missionaries share with us and send us prayer letters. To notice that, to read it, and to actually pray for what they ask us to pray for. Because our heart should burn for the world to know God. Because God's heart desires all to come to Him. Second application, I think, of this section is to ask ourselves the question, on what do we base our perception and acceptance of people. On what do I base my acceptance of people, my perception of people? Do I, do I need them to look a certain way or dress a certain way before I'll go greet them on Sunday morning? Or are there, there are certain people that I, I tend to be friendlier with other, than others? Or is my focus really based on do they love God? Are they seeking God? Or does God want them to love Him? How are we with people that are not quite like us? That's a challenge for us. And, and there's, there's times that I think we do really well at that and times that we don't. And we stick in our own little circles. But man, Sunday should be a time where we're looking around and, and I don't care if the guy's in a, a shorts and an angel shirt or whatever, go greet him. Or a suit and tie? Greet them. I don't care if they have tattoos up and down both arms. Greet them. That doesn't matter. It's what's in the heart. The heart for God. What do we base our, our perceptions on? Is it the heart? Or is it what we want to see? The last one there is no matter who you are, follow God. Accept His Son, Jesus, and you will be part of the family. No one can ever say, God doesn't want me. It's not, it's a lie from Satan. God will take whoever follows Him and He will change them into new creations, into beautiful creations as He intended them to be. No one is too far gone to outrun the grace of God. No one. I don't care what you've done in your past. The grace of God is enough and it will cover it. And it will, and it will cover it here at Village. 
That's the first eight verses, and we only have 20 minutes left. Second section. And this is the large section from verse 9 all the way to verse 13 of the next chapter. While we wait for the full completion of God's kingdom, people will still rebel and God will judge. One through eight is the ideal. This is the reality check. And this says we're still in a sinful, fallen world and people around us are still rebelling and it is hard to live for God sometimes in this world. Is that a fair statement? Sometimes it's hard to stand up for God. Sometimes we see that persecution. It is hard for us not to fall into the worldliness of this world. And so as we read this, he's describing what could have been happening when they came back from exile. He could be describing what's happening today. But he's describing a sinful world that God will eventually deal with. And and we'll look through these quickly. There's there's four points there. A, sin and self-centeredness will infect leadership. And this is where it starts in leadership. And leadership is so important. And it's important as we elect officers here and leaders here. And it's important to hold our leaders accountable. The church must have leaders that love God. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. Sort of inviting the surrounding nations to come back and attack again. And and he says why. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are like silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. And that's the first illustration he uses is these watchmen are like dogs. And the idea is that people in leadership are set up to protect and to watch, right? But they're just asleep. And they're like the dogs. Who, If you had a watchdog in the backyard and he couldn't bark, Get a different dog. Bring the one that can't bark inside. Keep him part of your family. But get a different watchdog. And, and that's... The Holy Spirit through Isaiah is really being pretty direct and pretty sarcastic here. He's saying your leaders are blind, so how can they see the threat? They're dogs that can't bark. They're dreaming because they've eaten so much, but yet they never really have enough. And then in the second part of 11, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. And he's describing leadership that has no taste for God, but only self but they find that self can't satisfy. See, leaders, godly leaders in a church, godly leaders in a home, dads, are watchmen that protect and watch out for threats that are coming in that are vigilantly protecting the family and on guard. Godly leaders in the church and in the home are shepherds. Shepherds protect, they care, and they feed and so dads, are we protecting our family from, from secular influences? Are we caring for our family present to where they know that we're there and we're part of the family? And are we feeding our family God's word? Are we coming together in, in family worship or in times and studying God's word together? And I know it's hard. 
I know it's hard to come to a routine. And, and as our kids age, we have to change our routines. We used to do it right before bed, but now they all go to bed at, at different times and there's hours separate and homework. And so now on the way to school, I have them trapped. And in that windshield time, as, as you guys called it, we, we read through different books of the Bible and talk about it on the way to school. And each of them read. It's, it's, is it perfect? No. But is it adapting to, to the, the schedule we have and finding ways to shepherd and to lead well? I, I hope it is. Man, we need to make sure that sin and self-centeredness aren't infecting our leadership and aren't infecting our church. I praise God for Village because of the quality of the elders and the deacons here, men of God who have not been infected in this way. And I, I, I praise God every day for that. We are blessed. It goes on in 57, and another characteristic of a sinful fallen world that's, in the, that's between the already and the not yet is good people are attacked, righteous people are attacked, and no one comes to their defense. Might as well just read that out of the news today. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. No one takes notice, that means. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. And then in an ironic twist, he says, he enters peace, the righteous man. He enters peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. It's talking about a culture where the good man can die and nobody cares. In fact, they're attacked so much and and they're taken away that there's just no serious consideration of them. No consideration that maybe they're righteous or just. But in verse 2, God says, and actually, they get their peace first because now they're with me and they're not in the fallen world. But really, what kind of culture would have no care when righteous men die and would have incredible vigils when wicked men die? And this this is the kind of culture that have leadership that have walked away from God that now the people don't care about good and then it leads to the next section, idolatry. People will love other things above God yet again. God's got to get tired of this. People will love other things above God yet again, but praise God for His patience that He doesn't. He doesn't weary of it and bring His full wrath on it, but He still draws people to Himself. Verse 3, But you, draw near, sons of sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? And he's, he's insulting them here, actually. Very, very intentional insults for their disloyalty. Calling them sons of, of people that are, are, are worshiping the spirits. Offspring of the adulterer, illegitimate children. Offspring of the prostitute. This is what God thinks of idolatry. And he goes on and, and 5 through 10 is just boom, 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 boom of, of describing this. You who burn with lust among the oaks, 
under every green tree. And, and when they, they thought of the green tree and the oaks, this was usually the rites and the worship of fertility gods. And with fertility gods, you would go and, ha- and commit sexual acts with the priest or priestesses of this religion in the hopes that that would spur God to bring you more crops and more rain and more fertility in your family. It's sick and it's disgusting because it is trusting man instead of God. And he says, under every green tree, and then he goes to the worship of Molech, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. Because they also worship stones. I guess that's better than a log you carve up, but it's still stuff. And they're, and, and they're worshiping stones in the valley. They're your lot. To them you've poured out a drink offering. You've brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? Are you kidding me? That's my little addition there. Verse 7, On a high and lofty mountain you've set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. And, and again, the high places were often where idolatry was practiced. And he's bringing up the bed because he's saying, you're, you're, you're committing these sexual acts. You're indulging your own appetite. And you're worshiping false gods. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial for your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide so everyone's welcome. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. Feel like today? Interesting here, the door and the doorpost. One of the traditions is, they, is that they will have a mezuzah with um, the, the, the law of God on their door and the doorposts. One of the things it says is, Hero Israel, your God is one. And it says you hide those things. You hide those things where you can't see them so that way you can go in and really your God is sex and lust and perversion. But you still have those on the door, hidden away. And it's a false religiosity. Verse 9, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes, speaking of the alliances and trusting kings rather than God. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. And verse 10 is just really fascinating. Shows the depth of where they've gone. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. And so the idea is, None of this worked. You're tired. You're not satisfied. You're wearied by it. But instead of turning to God, you, you, you didn't even come to the point of saying it's hopeless. You said, okay, I'm going to get more strength and I'm going to keep sinning. You found new life for your strength. And so you were not faint. Isn't that what sin does? It doesn't satisfy And instead of the light turning on so many times when we're trapped in sin, instead of the light turning on and us saying, oh, this isn't working, we're like, if I just try to sin more, I'll be happier. And God is calling that idolatry. And He's warning a people between the already and the not yet. How do you live for the kingdom? Stay away from idolatry. Stay away from these things that trap you. 
stay away from anything that takes more of your love than God. Anything. We might say, you know, I I haven't been tempted to take my bed up to a high hill. just hasn't happened. I haven't been tempted to go seek help from another country. But you have been tempted. You have been tempted to satisfy your desires with something other than God. I've been tempted. We must be on guard. Compare verse 10 to what we read in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, 30 and 31, even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He's promised where to get true strength from. But the people keep pursuing their own desires and lusts. Verses 11 through 13, sort of the culminating of the culmination of this section. So God will judge and they will have no place in the kingdom. Remember, we're talking about who's in and who's not. Those that pursue justice and righteousness have a heart for God, no matter who they are, are part of the kingdom. Here, those that don't and pursue their own idols, their own loves, will be judged. 11, whom did, whom did you dread and fear? So that you lied, you did not remember me, did not lay it on your heart, didn't even worry about my commands. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? Basically he's saying, I haven't wiped you out yet. You should be, you should be worshiping me. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. That reads a little strange to us, but the idea is I will expose or I will make known the truth of whether your deeds are righteous. And in the end, they won't profit you because they're not. In verse 13, the judgment. When you cry out, let your idols deliver you, your collection of idols deliver you. Go to them because that's who you've been worshiping. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me, and this is where the transition to the next section, this is the hope. He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And so finally, we see what it should be. A heart for God. A heart seeking Him. But we know that while there's sin in this world, our hearts are still wicked. And we can't perfectly pursue righteousness and justice on our own. And when we finally come to the point of saying, I can't do that on my own, that's when we're at the place God will meet us and where God wants to to meet us. And point number three, hope. God will draw near and save those broken over their sins and humble in spirit. The last section was all, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. This section is all, I will do this. I will, I will, I will. And this is the solution to admittance to the kingdom, even though we're not perfect. Verse 14, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. And it's God who's talking here saying, I'm going to remove any obstacle, anything that keeps you from coming to me. I'm going to remove that so you can come. 
And then 15, I think, is the verse to highlight, to memorize. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. And we've seen that said of the servant. We've seen that said in chapter 6 of God Almighty. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. And we see an amazing an amazing verse here that speaks to the greatness of God, the transcendence of God. He is high and lifted up. He is there is none like him. He is beyond what we can even even consider and dream of. He is in his holy and high place. And so if if we just saw that we'd be like, well God is distant. He's far off. But then the verse goes on to say, well no, actually I also dwell with him who is low, who is contrite and humble. And we see the imminence of God, we call that, that he's near, that he's close. He is set apart in other, but he has chosen to draw near to us. What an amazing God. And he says, here's here's the heart I'm looking for to be contrite. The idea behind contrite is to be crushed or broken because of our sin. We see it. You see it in your kids, right? When they apologize. Sometimes they're saying words and sometimes they're broken because of their sin. Which one's real? We know it as parents. God knows it as God the Father. He says, I want you to be crushed by your sin. to be agonized, agonizing over your sin. To repent and say, this was wrong. And then lowly in spirit, to be humble, to be bowed down, to think of the door of humility at the Church of the Nativity. And God says, I will dwell with you then. I will meet you. And he goes on in the rest of the passage to say, I'm not going to be angry forever. If I poured out my full wrath on you, you'd be decimated. But I love you and because of my patience, I will draw near to those that are contrite and lowly. Yes, the ideal is to be righteous and pursue justice perfectly. But none of us do it and we live in a fallen world. And so what what God in his perfect plan has said, so come to me broken by your sin. And say you need me. And then see what I can do with your life. And see the beauty. See the peace that I can give you. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Oh no, he doesn't despise it. He loves it. Because then he has clay that is moldable that he can work with. This is why it doesn't matter where you're coming from. What matters is are you broken from your sin and repentant of your sin and humbly trusting in God? It's a good reminder for all of us, even if we've been saved many years.
that that's the spirit God desires. One that humbly comes to Him. One that is poor in spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, as we read this introduction to discussions of Your kingdom, of Your future kingdom, we're challenged by what heart You want for us to be part of that kingdom. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that today would be a day where they say, my way hasn't worked. I've been trying it on my own and I've been rebelling against God's command. And I repent of that. I'm broken because of that. Lord, save me. And he will. And Lord, for those here today that have been believers a long time, crush us of the sin that we're used to. The sin that we tolerate the sin that we've stopped seeing because we've seen it too many times. And help us to come broken and bowed down to a Lord that wants us to devote our heart to Him. Thank You for Your kingdom. Help us to live in light of that, God. In Jesus' name, Amen.